This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. But the notion of cheap steel from China, I think, is a misnomer. Uh, there's the perception that cheap stainless is magnetic. And I, I want to point out that that is uh, a fallacy. If you jump in a tank to clean something and you've got dirt and debris on your shoes, that type of scratching on the surface can remove a passive film. This week on the show, demystifying the passivation of stainless steel. John Palmer and Ashton Lewis help us separate fact from fiction do a little myth-busting, and pick up some pointers for keeping your stainless steel healthy. All right, we've got a couple of former metalheads here on the show today. John, a lot of folks know you from your publications and other work you've done in brewing, but you had a whole career in metal before all of that, right? Yeah, um, I was a lead singer for a heavy metal band, I wish. Nice. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I worked um, in aerospace for a number of years uh, on the space station project as a metallurgist and then later for 3M uh, Corporation in their uh, medical devices division uh, as a metallurgist, heat treating, uh, which involved both careers involved both stainless alloys and aluminum alloys. All right. And then Ashton, you're slinging ingredients these days, but previously put in a lot of years at Mueller, a company that's been making brewery tanks for quite some time. Yeah, I came to Mueller in 1997, and I actually came in as a kind of a you know, brewing guy from UC Davis, and I worked there for 20 years. And over the years at Mueller, I learned a lot about stainless steel and took a particular interest in how breweries could either damage stainless steel or use it properly to avoid damage. And passivation is certainly one of those topics that is near and dear to the hearts of many brewers. All right. Well, let's start off by defining stainless steel, which can be a little tricky because everybody's got a slightly different recipe for stainless, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, stainless is actually a, a group of alloys, um, uh, not dissimilar to dogs in that regard. Um, you have um, roughly three groups you have the martensitic alloys the ferritic alloys 
and austenitic. Uh, most people are familiar with the austenitic series. That's your 300 series, which are nickel chromium. And it's those, those alloys are commonly used for cookware, um, stainless steel tanks, and so on. Uh, Ferritic series are your 400, no, sorry, 500 series. Um, and those are uh, stainless steel flatware like you get in the cafeteria. Your Martin Siddick series is the 400 series. Um, and uh, that's often used for knife blades and, and shears and things like that. And then there's a, a fourth group, uh, Duplex, which is actually a combined alloy of ferritic and austenitic that's able to exist as um, as two phases. And that's why they, they call it Duplex stainless steel. And uh, that stainless steel is, is particularly useful in that it uh, is much more resistant to stress corrosion cracking, which is a common problem in uh, stainless steels. Unfortunately, there's some cheap, low-quality stainless out there in our industry. What are the corners that get cut when someone produces cheap stainless? And what is it that a brewer is paying for when they spring for the good stuff? Backing up for a second, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in and do a lay, lay definition of stainless steel. So the, the basic stainless steel definition that a lot of brewers might find helpful is that it's an alloy that contains iron and chromium. And the minimum chromium percentage to have stainless steel is about 10.5% chromium with the remainder of the alloy being iron. That, that is fundamentally the, the basic definition of stainless steel. And the, the stainless steel as we know it today it's taken a long, long path in history, but the, uh, the first references to combinations of iron and chromium that resisted attack from corrosion date back to 1820 in England, uh, Stoddard and Faraday, and then uh, Bartier in France in 1821. And there was a really, really nice quote uh, attributed to uh, Carl Zaff, who was a metallurgist. And in 1960, in a book called Stainless Steel, The Miracle Metal, he wrote, starting from rust, men have produced something which looks like platinum and resists, resists chemical attack like gold. And yet a square inch can support a quarter of a million pounds. This is the crowning achievement of metallurgy. So stainless steel is kind of a simple, simple alloy with a lot of different variations and a lot of different applications. Yeah, that's, that's a very good, very good point. Um, Another aspect of stainless steel is, uh, especially in the 300 series, going back to your question, John, um, is carbon content. And in 300 series stainless, uh, carbon content is often what you're uh, paying to reduce. Um, The higher the carbon content in a 300 series stainless steel, the poorer the weldability of it will be. And so when you're welding up a tank that, um, that doesn't have low carbon, and this is often designated by the L suffix on the alloy name, such as 304L or 316L, um, that extra carbon causes carbide precipitation at the edges of the weld and um, very poor corrosion resistance in that area because that chromium has been, the protective chromium has been sucked away uh, from the uh, from the alloy itself, resulting in uh, segregation. Very good. Any other watchouts for brewers who might be in the market to purchase some stainless steel? 
Well, I think I th- you you got to look at the specification um, and know which alloy you're buying because um, if you're simply buying austenitic stainless uh, and they don't specify the alloy, then it could be you know a 200 series alloy, which is a uh, no nickel alloy. It's much cheaper than the 300 series, um, and there you're using uh, manganese and and nitrogen as your um, austenitic sta- uh, austenite stabilizers um, as, instead of nickel. Um, similar strength, similar workability, but um, different corrosion resistance. And and less corrosion resistant to uh, many of the chemicals that the uh, brewing equipment would see. So it's what I'm what I'm trying to get at is that it's not simply cheap stainless; it's different stainless. Have you guys run into either of you run into any of that stuff out in the field? Well, backing up a second on that, the notion of cheap stainless. So you know, to further what John is saying. When I think of the cost of stainless steel, it's almost like going to a, a restaurant and ordering a meal and paying a la carte by the ingredients that are used to, to come up with the, you know, the, the dish that you're buying. So the, the main types of stainless steel used in the brewing industry are really quite limited. There's, there's 304, 304L, and then 316, 316L. And then there's some other alloys that are sometimes used, duplex grades like 2204, and uh, I'm sorry, 2205. And exotic steels for breweries would be something like AL6XN, which is a high molly steel. But for the most part, you're paying, you're really paying for nickel and, and molly. And 304 doesn't have any molly. It's, it's only expensive ingredient really is nickel. And then 316 contains a little bit more nickel, but it's, it has molybdenum, which is different than 304. Um, but the notion of cheap steel from China, I think is a misnomer. And I've been out of stainless steel now for a little over two years. But when I was at the Paul Mueller company, we did look at the cost of stainless steel from China to see if, you know, how it differed from the price we were paying for steels that were domestically sourced. And the truth is, is that there is not a lot of difference in cost of the, the raw material. In fact, for a U.S. manufacturer to import steel from China oftentimes is more expensive than domestic steel because of the cost of freight. The thing that separates equipment made in other countries from equipment that's manufactured in the United States is the cost of labor. That that really is the cost difference between so-called cheap equipment from Asia and more expensive equipment from North America. Cool. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, well, I guess let's get into some of the passivation stuff now. So when we talk about passivation, we're trying to create a passive surface or layer what exactly is a passive surface? Well, it's the it's the uh, oxides that form on the surface of the metal. Um, in the case of plain iron or low or carbon steel, um, that oxide layer that forms on the surface of the steel is called rust, and it it doesn't form any kind of barrier. Um, once that rust starts, it can keep on rusting beneath it. But in the case of uh, stainless steel, you have a combination of uh, chromium oxides and nickel oxides um, on the surface. And those oxides uh, do, not, do not propagate. They don't penetrate beneath the surface. So they, they form a surface barrier. Um, 
And so what you're doing when we're when we talk about passivating stainless steel is we're providing a clean metal surface that allows these uh, passive oxide layers and and barrier oxide layers to instantly form with contact with the air. Um, you don't have to wait periods of time. It, it just happens. The, uh, so th- then, then you can start talking about degrees of passivation. Um, you can use acids, uh, for example, to uh, modify the surface of the, of the part. Um, you know, etch away some of the, the uh, less corrosion-resistant phases of the stainless steel um, to make a, a chromium-rich surface that is more passive than the initial surface. But we're talking about small differences, really, maybe 15% improvement in terms of uh, you know, a, a salt test. All right, let's get into the specifics of how a brewer needs to go about creating that passive layer. One of the one of the fundamental things that needs to happen with any passivation me- method is to begin with clean steel. So most passivation methods begin by, you know, cleaning the metal, which oftentimes is just to remove oils and and debris that might be remaining from fabrication. So a lot of times on on new steel, there there are um, either oils from lubrication used in fabrication, or there are adhesive films that are used to um, protect the steel during shipment, oftentimes PVC type plastic, and those those adhes- those films are held to the stainless steel with different ad- adhesives, so those film residues have to be removed. Um, you want to talk about some of the other things that are used, John, after the, the tank is cleaned? Sure. Um, yeah, so you, as he says, you, you have to get the, the, clean, the stainless clean um, to, you know, provide oxygen access for this passive layer to form uh, an oil on the surface would be an oxygen barrier and so what you would end up with is an electrochemical difference between the passive area and then this unpassive area next to it and that's where you'd get your corrosion is at that interface so um the ways that you can uh, achieve passivation are one to use a you know, strong uh, detergent or caustic to, you know, fully clean the steel, uh, thoroughly rinse it it and get good um, uh, sheeting action, you know, of your rinse water. You want to see that sheet down the steel rather than bubbling or forming droplets, Um, you know, full wetting. And that indicates you've got a clean surface. Um, Then that, that surface on exposure to the air will be passive. Um, as I was saying, and Ashton was saying, you can modify that surface chemistry by the use of acids. Now, nitric acid is the most common passivating acid. Um, it's been in use for, you know, 50 years or more. And uh, it reduces the iron-rich phases at the surface in favor of, and leaving behind more chromium-rich phases. And thereby boosts the passivity of that surface by by a small but significant uh, uh, percentage. And the problem with nitrate, though, is that it's very uh, hazardous, hazardous to skin, and also can cause damage to uh, elastomers and so on gaskets. So it's a it's rather hazardous acid to use. Um, we also have citric acid passivation these days. Um, 
And uh, this citric acid is, of course, a much milder acid. It's not as hazardous to skin, but it does act as a chelator of iron. It, that is, the citrate ion is able to uh, uh, associate itself with, with iron uh, atoms and thereby and improve that surface uh, chemistry. They also add other additives such as uh, other additional chelators such as uh, EDTA to help um, that. And so citric acid passivation is, is very effective uh, when it comes to passivating uh, stainless steel, but much less hazardous to work with. Yeah, both of those uh, types of passivation, as far as uh, in an industry perspective, are commonly used by fabricators either in the fabrication arena, in the, in the shop, so to speak, or in the field after tanks have been delivered. And one of the main reasons for using these passivating acids is to remove free iron from the surface of the steel that can come from uh, dust in the shop. You know, some shops, actually a lot of shops, are not just stainless steel shops. They have carbon steel in the manufacturing facility. Um, yeah. Carbon steel oftentimes is used for structural supports or, or even fabricating platforms or, or what have you. So if there's any you know, dust in the air in the shop, that, that dust can end up on the surface of the steel. But more importantly, when, when tanks are transported on roads, you know, there's all kinds of brake dust all over roadways that are full of iron. And that kind of dust um, can be on tanks or if equipment is transported over dirt roads, for example, you can have iron-containing dust that ends up on the, on the surface of a vessel. So nitric acid um, and citric acid are two common acid cleaners that are used to remove the free iron that's oftentimes on, on the surface of, of new equipment. Or in the case of um, mildly in, embedded iron, you know, something that might be actually embedded in the surface from grinding or, or touching with a tool or a chain or something like that. Yeah, fixturing equipment. It will, yeah, yeah, fixtures or straps on, on trucks. The nitric's going to do a better job of removing that than the citric. Yeah. And now the, um, the citric does have a disadvantage, though. I mean, it's not an oxidizer like nitric is, right? Well, th th it's... It's not a real disadvantage. Um, the the um, the idea that an oxidizing acid uh, um, passivates better than a non-oxidizing acid is, uh, I think that doesn't have a lot of basis um, given our current understanding of passivation, uh, because the the surface on exposure to oxygen will passivate. Um, and so it doesn't rely on the uh, oxidizing pro properties of the acid itself to provide that oxygen, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, that makes sense. Coming up. Uh, there's the perception that cheap stainless is magnetic. And I, I want to point out that that is uh, a fallacy. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by... 
ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by... Whitcomb Selinski McAuliffe PC serves all brewers in registering and protecting trademarks, navigating the label approval process, and assisting with OSHA inspections and safety compliance. Please go to WSMLawPC.com for more information. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. District Pittsburgh meets April 15th. The Brewery Packaging and Technology course starts in Madison April 21st. District St. Louis meets April 25th at Second Shift Brewery. The 58th Annual District Caribbean Convention joins forces with District Southeast in Miami May 2nd through the 5th. This is going to be a big meeting with lots of great speakers, including folks who've been on this podcast. Joe Hertrick, Andrew Fradiani, John Mallett, Roy Johnson, Dr. John Paul May, Andy Tavikram, and more. District Philly also meets May 3rd at 2 SP Brewing. If you're barrel aging, don't miss the May 9th webinar screening for lactobacillus acetotolerans in a brewery setting. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets May 16th at the Star Keller in New Ulm. District St. Louis is at Old Bakery Brewery May 16th. And District Northern Illinois meets at Half Acre Beer May 31st. It's time to start making plans for the 2019 Master Brewers Conference. If you can only make it to one conference in 2019, this should be it. We're really mixing things up this time and heading to the Calgary Convention Center to see how Alberta celebrates Halloween. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. One one point I wanted to bring up, um, and as we talk about you know the the uh, issue of iron on the surface of the stainless steel, is that um, iron or less corrosive uh, steel uh, in contact with the stainless can actually poison or or um, bridge that passive layer. So if you have um, a piece of you know common steel wool or a scratch from a screwdriver or some, you know, or just like Ashton said, you know, a piece of brake pad that has iron in it, that contaminating iron can rust. And then that rust from that piece will contaminate the stainless and act as a bridge to further oxidation of the iron rich phases in the stainless. So this is why, um, this this is why we really talk about uh, pass, uh, nitric acid passivation or acid cleaning as part of the passivation step to ensure that we have all these contaminants off the surface that could compromise the stainless later. Yeah, and that what John's referring to. Some people have a, a problem with the term air passivation, but really the the net result of this thorough cleaning and removing the obstacles to the formation of the passive film really is air passivation. And the, the thickness of this passive film is literally a couple atoms thick. It's not, it's not like a physical rust oxide that you could scrape off with a, a fingernail yeah. or a piece of you know, grinding paper. It, it's, it's really a, a molecular film on the surface of the steel that, that happens spontaneously when the steel is in a 
condition that it can react with oxygen in the air. That's right. And that, and you're saying that happens instantly, that you don't need hours or minutes for that. Right. It's instant. And is more time going to give you a better layer, or are you going to no. get what you're going to get in seconds? In, yeah, it happens, and as Ashton says, it's only a few molecules thick. So it is a, it is a molecular barrier. Um, it's not a surface coating. Um, and uh, so, yeah. And this is why we talk about um, iron poisoning uh, and other aspects of, you know, the, and I guess we could get into the aspects of how corrosion happens on stainless steel uh, in light of this mole- you know, thin molecular barrier. What were you going to say, Ashton? Well, I, I sense the question coming from John that, that's poking at the idea that, that air passivation requires time. And, you know, th- there is a lot of, of that referred to in, you know, in the practical body of, of knowledge. And I think part of that, that time factor is actually a drying time. And that's especially true when a tank is cleaned on the inside. You know, oftentimes the, the internal relative humidity of that, of that tank is very, very high. So sometimes it takes quite a long time for the surface of steel to dry if it's an enclosed tank. So I, I really think that the, the air passivation time factor is more of a drying time than anything else just to allow, you know, the surface of the steel to actually be in contact with the atmosphere. Yeah. Although most, uh, you know, a water film is is not a barrier to oxygen, so it can diffuse through it. But yeah, that's that. That I think Ashton is right. That's where that idea of a time factor is really coming from. Is you know to give the the tank time to dry before you start using it. And just a springboard off of a word that you used earlier, John. You used the word poison, and sometimes there's mystery rust on stainless steel. And nothing seems to be odd, but if the tank was fabricated in such a way that um, a different alloy was welded to the, let's, let's say you have a tank that's jacketed, and you can't see the the outside of the actual tank wall itself, and that there was something like carbon steel, just common steel welded as a support on the tank, if there's not a poison pad between the, the common steel and the stainless steel, then that welding on that common steel can can cause corrosion on the inside of the tank because of what's welded to the outside of the tank uh yeah that's right yeah Hmm. pretty interesting okay well we've already uh gotten into this a little bit but let's talk more about what exactly degrades or removes that passive layer over time what are some examples of things that can do that well the big one is chlorides um, chlorides, whether in in any form, whether it's chlorine, um, you know, dis- residual disinfectant in the water, or you know, uh, salt chloride, um, hypochlorides, um, and various you know cleaning um, cleaning compounds often t- contain chlorides. Um, all of these can uh, react with that passive film, and essentially, you know change that passive chromium oxide to a chromium chloride compound which is not passive so now you have essentially a hole in that molecular barrier and that is uh, often depending on the the 
um, the liquid you know that's that's in the tank that's often enough to cause corrosion at that site and pitting corrosion is the most common form of corrosion on stainless steel uh, is again where you get some agent whether it's a chloride or a scratch or something that that bridges or, or breaks that molecular barrier um, and allows access and then and, and ordinary corrosion i guess you could say of the iron rich phases beneath yeah and, and you use the word hole in the passive film and if you have a liquid in the tank that has chloride in it you can quite literally end up with a hole in your stainless steel when one story to, to tell here that's kind of interesting when i was at mueller we we had supplied some very large uh so-called bioreactors basically large fermenters for the production of um Oh, a compound in baby food. It was actually an algal, algal fermentation, and they were producing um, unsaturated fatty acids, omega three type fatty acids, in the fermentation. And they had they had holes developing in their tanks. So of course, you know, like brewers always blame the maltster, where you know, in the pharmaceutical companies, they always blame the stainless steel supplier. Well, it turned out that the growth media that they were using in these vessels was molasses based. And they switched suppliers, and all of a sudden they had chloride in their in their feedstock that they didn't know about, and the chlorides literally um, removed the passive film on the surface in spots, and ended up with act ended up with active corrosion cells that literally had the effect of, of making holes in the tank. Yeah, little What's the, What remedy is there for that? I mean, do you have to get in there and actually like repolish the tank and passivate again, or is it not even that simple? Well, if you catch it, actually, they didn't have it so bad that there were holes all the way through the tank. They had pits that would have eventually led to holes in the tank, which is actually not uncommon for like hot adjunct tanks, for example, that might have chlorides from the um, the starch hydrolysis. But the practical remedy is if you spot uh, pits like that, the pits can be ground out, you know, with uh, with grinding tools, you know, abrasives, and then. The tank can be repassivated, and if the pit is deep enough that it's actually a problem, you know, where it's going to compromise the structural integrity of the tank, the pit can be ground out, and then you could you could weld, you know, onto that area, um, you know, plug welds, or you could weld a patch over it, and then grind it, and then and repassivate. So there there are remedies to that type of problem. Okay, and then I guess um, any other causes we want to talk about that remove that passive layer. I mean, I assume. Any other kind of surface damage or physical abrasion, or, or I'm sure there's other chemical reactions that, that would cause a, a problem as well, right? Yeah, yeah. John, the biggie, the, the chlorides are, are so bad. I mean, they're so severe that stainless steel suppliers oftentimes have chloride disclaimers in their, in their sales documents because that, that's a real, real problem. But another common thing that a lot of people overlook is, is human intervention. So if you jump in a tank to clean something, or to you know check on something in your mash tun or your your blue pedal or whatever, and you've got dirt and debris on your shoes, that type of scratching on the surface can remove a passive film, and you don't even know it happened because you don't you're not really paying attention to that. And then all the problems that John previously mentioned um, can happen just like with the chloride damage. And you might have trace amounts of iron on your shoes or anything else, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. How about uh, I've read that the passive layer can even be damaged um, just from simply from the expansion and contraction 
that vessels experience over as they go through high and low temperature cycles. Is that true? I I don't have any basis to say yes or no. Um, I, it doesn't seem very plausible to me, but maybe it is. I don't know. Fair enough. What if anything is different when you're passivating brand new equipment versus equipment that's already in service and, and it's you know a routine situation? I would say this: the soil load is quite different. The the types of debris that might be on a new vessel is really really different than what you're going to see in normal marine operations. So the the types of I'm going to call it stuff. The types of coatings that may be on a new tank include. You know, petroleum films, you know, those could be lubricants, um, you know, machining oils. They can be these adhesive films, which are really problematic. It, we had, over the years, Mueller has had these mystery challenges with adhesive films, and the, the companies that sell these films to protect stainless steel act like they've never heard of these problems. But if you <laughs> Google adhesive film residue stainless steel, you'll find problems going back to 30 years or more from companies that have used these films. So those are not normal films that you have in a brewery. Yeah. I, the, the, the beer wort itself is not corrosive to stainless steel. Um, so, you know, the, then even though it's beer wort can be low pH and you may have even a sour beer going on, you know, with lactic acid, though that those organic acids are not very corrosive to stainless steel. Um, what what is what can be corrosive are your cleaning chemicals, uh, your CIP process chemicals, um, and so that's why um, you know hot rinse, burst rinse. I mean, rinsing is very important when uh, cleaning because you need you often need to get these uh, chlorinated compounds you know, re- totally removed. Uh, that's that, and that's really where the, a lot of the concerns on stainless come from. Um, going back to what Ashton was saying, you know, with, uh, these, uh, adhesive films, we've, we've touched on pitting corrosion, uh, mechanism briefly. Um, we've talked about stress corrosion. There's also crevice corrosion and all of these, uh, corrosion mechanisms, what's, what's happening, you know, on a very localized scale, you know, micro scale is that you have a, a, a large passive region, you know, chromium oxide, molecular barrier, um, immediately adjacent to a non-passive region. And so at that interface, there is a large electrochemical difference. And that's where that corrosion can start happening. And then, you know, the, because of that higher energy, that, that chromium oxide layer can be breached there right at, the, say, the edge of a, an adhesive film. And then that will start pitting. And once you form a pit, now you're creating geometry differences that also increase the electrochemical difference of that pit to the surrounding area. And you accelerate that. Uh, that corrosive energy so um that that is the primary mechanism when we talk about adhesive film damage or say oil or other um, contaminants on the surface you know non-metallic contaminants is that you're setting up these interface uh regions where corrosion can occur yeah and you mentioned uh you know films on tanks john 
Uh, protective films are one example of that. Another set of examples would be tape. You know, sometimes tape is used oh, yeah. to label takes, and people oftentimes either don't even notice that there's a piece of tape. Or another common problem is within stainless steel pipe systems, if they're pipe hangers that are not properly designed, you can have corrosion underneath a pipe hanger, which can be kind of a bad surprise if you remove a hanger and notice that you know there's a corroded part of your pipe system. Yeah. Yeah, having like galvanized uh, pipe hangers uh, in contact with stainless steel can be bad because the that the chromium or the stainless steel is much more corrosion resistant than the zinc. The zinc corrodes away under condensation, for example, and then leaving bare steel in contact with that stainless, you know, with condensation, and now you've got that iron contamination uh, mechanism available to it. And that's an example of galvanic corrosion where basically you've got a battery cell set up that becomes, you can have very rapid uh, degradation of material under those sets of conditions. Right. I want to, we'll get into sort of the, the frequency, uh, you know, of passivation here in a second, but I, I guess I want to ask you, are there any special occasions when brewers should be sure to passivate? After welding is probably the biggest. So repairs and stuff like that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, as as we were alluding to, most of the uh, brewing, I mean, you know, work not corrosive. Uh, brew, uh, CIP chemicals can be, but if you've got good rinsing in place and you know you good good quality control there, you're probably fine. Um, and then, and then also, know, I guess you know, whenever someone enters a tank, like Ashton mentioned too. Yeah, you that should would put be, on. That would be a time to make sure you're yeah. passivated, right? Well, yeah, especially if you notice that somebody scratched it up, um, you know. May and uh, but if they, you know, if you put on soft booties and and you're clean, and then it shouldn't be an issue. Um, yeah, I mean, the stainless is not, you know, uh, fragile, but um, it, you're you are trying just to err on the side of caution. I've always taken the approach of more frequent, you know, less acid more frequently. Whereas, you know, there are other folks out there who say, oh, well, we just, we do 9% every year or twice a year or whatever. Talk about that. I wouldn't get caught up in the strength of your cleaning acid so much as what are you really trying to accomplish? So I think in your, in your approach, John, if you're cleaning frequently with a more mild solution, I think what really is happening there is that you're you're keeping a buildup from from forming on the surface of the steel, and that that clean surface is allowed to air passivate every single time after cleaning. And you know the passivation layer only reforms if there's a break in the layer. But let's say that you had a a formation of a mineral scale on equipment, and that mineral scale over time led to the degradation of the passive layer. Well, by removing that, that mineral scale and allowing the, the passive film to reform, you're allowing the, you know, the, the metal to remain healthy over time. You know, compare that to a tank that's been neglected where you've you know, gone a year between cleaning and now that, that tank might have a very heavy film of calcium carbonate if you have very hard you know, limestone water in the tank. Or beer stone, yeah. Or, yeah, beer stone calcium oxalate. Um, so you're going to have to have maybe a longer, hotter, more intense cleaning, and that may or may not involve 
stronger chemical. But I think that that situation is where some brewers get into the mindset of repassivation is something that has to be done because you've neglected, you know, the, the equipment over time and maybe the passive film has been compromised. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, I think that's most likely cases where uh, beer stone or some other mineral film is built up and then you require stronger chemicals uh, to clean it, to, to remove it and there, thereby a, a stronger uh, propensity for having damaged the passive layer. And so then repassivation uh, it would, might, would be a good idea at that point. But as you say, John, if you're, you're keeping it clean all along with uh, milder acid rinses and, you know, just in good inspection and so on, then uh, repassivation, you know, as a matter of course, once a year probably isn't necessary. May, it may not be a bad idea, but it's probably not necessary. I'll confess, you know, I'm, I'm part of the Springfield Brewing Company, and Paul Mueller Company owns Springfield Brewing Company until the very end of 2011. And the brewery was built in 1997 as a showcase for Mueller equipment. So we've got quite a lot of Mueller stainless steel at Springfield Brewing Company, and not one single tank has been repassivated in the last 21 years. And our, our equipment really looks pretty darn new for being 21 years old. So it really depends on how the equipment's been maintained and used over the life of the equipment. And, you know, that, that life of the equipment's going to dictate if you really have to repassivate or not. I know you guys probably want to talk about magnetism. Let's hear about that. Well, Ashton and I were talking earlier today about the uh, cheap stainless question. And one aspect of that is magnetism uh there's the perception that cheap stainless is magnetic and i, I want to point out that that is uh, a fallacy that um when you cold work austenitic stainless steel even if it's 316l um what you're doing is you're you what not what you're doing but part of what happens is that you end up aligning the grains and the uh, and the atoms in the steel which makes it more magnetic so a cold worked stainless steel tank is going to display magnetism even if it's you know pure 316l or 304l duplex what have you um the the forming operation is going to induce molecular alignment and uh and it will display magnetism it won't have the same snappiness as say carbon steel but it will be magnetic even though it is stainless and is passive and etc yeah so doing the the old you know take a magnet and put it on your tank to determine if it's real or memorex you you might get some misleading data if you don't really know what you're observing because you might have a magnet stick to a stainless steel tank that's really mildly magnetic and, and not an indicator of some type of you know phoretic steel that should not be in your brewery right yeah it's not an indicate good indicator of alloy you know the fact is you know global pressures on pricing are gonna keep cheap cheaper equipment floating in the u.s and like i said earlier a lot of that cheaper equipment is cheaper because of labor but for for companies that are concerned about what they're actually buying one one non-invasive and non-destructive method of of uh, determining your alloy is to use an x-ray gun 
they're they're very very expensive but they can be rented and there are testing companies that will perform tests that are non-destructive using a an x-ray gun that can tell you the uh the alloy composition of steel so there's anybody out there that's you know wanting to buy something from overseas but concerned about it there are ways of determining what you're buying without you know sending your tank to a destructive testing lab yeah that's a good point ashton you've got another watch out that a lot of brewers probably haven't thought about in regards to water chemistry what's that well, one, one thought, you know, there, there's two beer styles right now that are, you know, pretty popular, New England style oh, yeah. IPAs or, or hazy IPAs. And then, you know, the so-called Gozas that I, I call them so-called because a lot of, you know, the kettle sours are probably not real true to style for Goza, but Goza and New England IPAs have something in common, and that's they use they use chloride containing salts in their formulation. So oftentimes we say that there's really nothing in a brewery that's really going to be detrimental to 304 or 316 stainless steel. But if you're adding uh, sodium chloride to your, your Goza, or if you're adding calcium chloride to your New England IPA, uh, if you make a mess and don't clean it up, you could end up with uh, corrosion that, that does uh, take away the passive film. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. And uh, you know, rinsing clean and good CIP is your is your friend there. I mean, it's when you have you know evaporation uh, concentration uh, of say you know high high chloride wort or water on the surface um, that can compromise the passivity in that local spot. Uh, you know, in that watermark, and then that can be you know over time that can develop into a pit. That was John Palmer and Ashton Lewis dishing out some solid practical advice and doing a little myth-busting here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Are you headed to the Craft Brewers Conference in Denver? Stop by the Master Brewers booth, number 9102, where you can watch us record a few episodes of the Master Brewers Podcast. Did you know that Master Brewers now has a mobile app? TQ articles, podcasts, webinars, Ask the Brewmasters, and more, all in the same place. Search Master Brewers in the App Store to download it now. 